something bigger than you, and you become bigger as a result of it. That was part of a 2003 interview with the late Studs Terkel. He died in 2008 at the age of 96. Writer David Foster Wallace, sadly enough, died much younger. Wallace was a highly influential writer of nonfiction and fiction, including his vast novel, Infinite Jest. He took his life by suicide earlier this year. We talked with David Foster Wallace back in 1999 after the release of his book, Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. The, the book, for me, anyway, it's about a certain kind of loneliness that that's constituted out of situations that are supposed to be... Um, they're supposed to involve love, specifically sexual love and parent-child love. But it's supposed to be, and, and again, I'm talking about how it is for me, not how any reader's going to see it. But it's, I think it's supposed to be kind of, um, if that particular area of darkness is a jewel, it's supposed to be that jewel from a number of different facets. And most of the, most of the differences and most of the facets involve differences in voices. Um, the interlocutor, who for me is kind of, I, I'm, I'm really into the interlocutor of these interviews who nobody else even hears or sees, but sh- um, th- these men, are, these men are, are, are not seen, they're heard exclusively through her, and so there's a lot of attention to the voice. You know what, I, I have no idea whether this is making any sense. No, it is, actually. I mean, if, it's not only men, though, that we're talking about. I say there's this woman, for example, who is obsessed about the fact that she may not be sexually pleasing her husband, and she goes off to this place called Adult World, where she winds up buying various objects to uh, presumably enhance her uh, her sex life. But uh, y- And you've also got, uh, like I said, 13-year-old kid up on a diving board in a scene that many of us recognize, looking down, being afraid to go off the diving board, and so forth. So it seems, once again, as if you're really capturing or trying to capture many different kinds of facets of human behavior, though I would agree with you that the focus is on love and, and, and on sex. Maybe, or else a certain, I, I don't know, a certain kind of loneliness. The, 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 the book, b- besides Jersey Kaczynski's Steps, which is a big book for me, and, and not many people remember it, but it's, 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 it's also very fragmentary and kind of um, almost parable-ish, um, you know, Little Brown will not be pleased that I'm sitting here plugging a 30-year-old book by somebody else. This is like an incredible book. No, there's this a is, really this hideous is the, men in this, this is, book. This is just about the creepiest book I've ever read in my life. But there's a, there's another one called Eleven Kinds of Loneliness by Richard Yates, which, and he's another writer I don't know that much about, but I've always just been obsessed by the title. And for in, until I came to my senses, the working title of this book was 24 Kinds of Loneliness because it's 24 different sorts of stories. And even even though the voices are very different and the consciousnesses are very different, um, at least for me, it's basically a book about loneliness. And and, and you know the the woman in adult world isn't just worried about not pleasing her husband. She she suspects she suspects that 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 her husband isn't being entirely faithful to her and the this and and has an epiphany about that. It's really my attempt to do an epiphany story. And you even use the word epiphany. Yeah. Yeah, except, well, the second part's an outline because I was so nervous about trying to do an epiphany straight. I could only do the outline of the epiphany. But Makes you anyway. feel a little overshadowed by Joyce when you use that word. Huh? Uh, yeah, well, it's just, it's so hard these days to have a character stand at a window and suddenly, you know, have realization break across her features without just coming off. I mean, how many times has, has something like that been parodied in, in, you know, on Saturday Night Live or in... Um, how, how to do how to do how to do genuine intense emotional stuff in in art fiction these days is a really interesting question and some of the shucking and jiving in this book is you're watching a very nervous 
writer who's trying who's trying to talk about emotional stuff and is also terrified of coming off sentimental. But you've got control. You know, you get, you have control over the tone. There are a couple of stories. For example, there's a story that won no Henry Award about the depressed person. <laughs> we don't even know what gender for a while this depressed person is. And I found you know this the, the whole sense of control that you were able to exercise pretty remarkable. There's a there's a, a piece about a um, a poet just sitting alone in a speedo. Um, with a, I think it's a copy of Newsweek on his stomach or something. And again, you know, there's a sense of, of control over the emotion or the sentiment, which obviously you know, comes off. I mean, I think well, you do very well. Well, thank you. And obviously, I'm, I'm more pleased. I'm more pleased with that response than the opposite. I, I know, for instance, the, uh, the people who don't like my stuff, um, of whom there are not a few, um, view, view it as, as just heavily stylized. And, and, w- and there's a great deal of emphasis on sort of technique and different points of view and stuff. And to an extent, deep down, I kind of know what they're talking about because this book, I think, is stylistically pretty fine. I'm pretty happy with it. But some of the emphasis on style and line-by-line um, light show is is meant to to take attention away from or compensate for the fact that some of these stories are really almost sentimental in terms of dealing with kind of gooey solar plexus like stuff that I that I just as somebody who was raised on you know Saturday Night Live and the Letterman show and the the black humorists in the 60s who you know dined out on on carving up you know these old standard sentimental Think about like Vonnegut and Bruce J Friedman Yeah sure and and and, and, and Barth and Bartholomew and Pynchon and then you know um uh, oh McGuane um you know all J- early Jim Harrison I mean all of these guys and and these guys were kind of um, as a writer, they're kind of my they're kind of my my fathers or my father's generation. They were the ones who, as a reader, I was really interested in. I I'm not really interested in doing the kind of stuff that they do, but I but I'm very conscious of I think being in their shadow, and or of of their having robbed me and other literary readers of an innocence that can never again be recaptured. It's sort of sad when you put it that way. Though there's there is a moment. There's a piece that gets kind of sentimental for me. Let me let me talk with you about it and sort of describe it for our listeners. Um, there's a piece where a guy is very vague about having given somebody or helped somebody with generosity, get some money, and uh, he doesn't want to be specific about it. He doesn't want to disclose who he is and so forth, and in fact doesn't want to disclose to the person who got the money, but inadvertently does so. And then he feels as if he's sort of evil almost for having done this because he wanted it to be pure. He wanted, yeah. you know, the, the charity to, and generosity to be pure. Yeah. I was very touched by that story, and yet in a way it comes across as somewhat sentimental. Well, uh, um, this may be a generational thing. I, I, from your face, I can't tell whether you mean sentimental as a criticism or not. I, from my generation, when I hear An observation. The, sentimental hear is the, a bad word to you, though. Yeah, when I hear the S word, I wince. Um, it, it's, it's involuntary. That, that story... That's a, that's an okay story. It just and I, means and it has sentiment in it, though. You know. uh, well, that's interesting. Sen- sentimentality, at least for me, or what I was taught in my little workshops, is sentimentality is, as Updike said, loving loving your characters more than God loves them. Or, And from the reader's point of view, um, sentimentality, I think, is, is really associated with being man- being manipulated by certain kinds of art, you know, having your having your emotions fumbled at the way, like a co-ed's brassiere or something, you know, some kind of clumsy... You mean to tell me artists shouldn't be manipulative or um, aren't manipulative? I, I, I think all art is really is, is manipulative. Um, bad art, the, the person can tell they're being manipulated, right? I mean, it, it's, all, it's all sort of a, a continuum. What I'm talking about, though, is uh, um, I, I can imagine writers 40 or 50 years ago um, feeling a visceral horror 
of say of say being being obscene or unpatriotic or vulgar or in poor taste you know the whole visceral definitions of obscenity that 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 it just seems to me that for my generation and maybe that you know the the writers younger than me that kind of horror we feel for the sentimental and the sappy and the gooey and the you know the bridges of Madison County ish and 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 to attempt to try to do fiction about human beings who are sometimes in pain and have sometimes um, emotional experiences that are powerful because they're not unique and because they're not complicated and and to do that in a way that doesn't come off as the sort of thing that Dan Aykroyd was parodying into oblivion 20 years ago you know I would just say is a problem well, when you don't, for example, when you write about the depressed person or when you write about a guy with one arm, that's when, when you're least sentimental. I mean, everything is just pretty straightforward. Well, and, and, you know, and, and now I'm painting myself into a corner because, yeah, it would be a pot, there's a lot of grotesquerie in this book. And I sure hope the grotesquerie is not meant to somehow... Um, somehow attenuate sentimentality or something. I mean, I'm interested in, <laughs> I'm interested in grotesquerie for for sort of other reasons, but but to go back, I mean, to go back to the devil is a busy man, which which I think is the one. Th- there are two stories about the sort of the devil and giving and the impossibility of giving, and this is supposed to be a subset of the loneliness. The thing, the thing about that story. Um, that that is most striking to me is that it's 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 very heavily stylized. The guy's not very literate. And he makes a lot of mistakes. There are a lot of sort of grammar mistakes in the story, and in a way that's all right, and it creates the character. But in another way, looking back at it, I can just tell that I was so terrified that it, this was going to come off sentimental that I wanted. I, I, I wanted to have other stuff going on in the story. And for me, the easy stuff to have going on is the syntactic stuff and the stylistic stuff and whatever. And I'm not arguing with you or saying it's not a good story. I'm just aware that uh, I, I'm just aware that a lot of the choices I think that I make in dealing with this stuff come really out of a, a, a very deep kind of fear that I don't think is just mine. Well, you talked about Saturday Night Live a few times. Talk about Metamorphosis. That show just isn't funny anymore, is it? Well, see, this is the thing. is You know, it's one of the reasons I've been nervous coming on radio shows talking about this stuff is, you know, yeah, Dan Aykroyd parodied stuff, but I'll bet a lot of your listeners don't even remember. You know, this stuff is fairly fresh to me because I was 18, 19, 20, you know, when Saturday Night Live was at its zenith. And, you know, for your listeners who are younger than that, the, the, the one-two punch of Saturday Night Live and the David Letterman show did a number on, on, I think, the American psyche and the American sense of humor like, you know, like maybe nothing else. Um, and a lot of it consisted in making really ingenious fun of, of hypocrisies and uh, kind of, kind of old-fashioned quaint, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of commercial where the woman strokes her chin and says, you know, oh, gosh, Bob never says that about my meatloaf and stuff like that. So such, and, you know, and it was totally brilliant and it was totally, uh, you know, exhilarating for me to watch, um, but but like like the black humorous of the '60s, it it I think introduced a kind of carapace of irony into the well, the upscale term is cultural discourse. You know, the the ways the ways the ways you and I talk to each other, and the way we talk to each other as as a group, whether through art or in public discussions, that I just don't think the country's recovered from. That was the late David Foster Wallace talking to us in 1999. We're going to take a brief break when we return a 1995 interview with Barack Obama, who had then just published his memoir, Dreams from My Father. ¶¶ 